0: Today's Bible reading is from Ezekiel thirty-six sixteen to thirty-eight. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land. They defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath upon them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they have, yet, and yet they have had to leave this land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and move you to follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain, and make it plentiful, and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees, and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sin and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be cultivated, instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, "This land that was laid waste has become like the garden of Eden." The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, and are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I am the Lord. The I of the Lord have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks or offerings at Jerusalem for doing her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord.
1: Well, how hopeful would you say you are about our world? Are you hopeful about the direction that it's heading in? Are you hopeful about the direction of our society? Uh, How hopeful are you about your own life? Uh, Steven Pinker, uh, who's a professor of psychology at Harvard, he's actually fairly optimistic about the direction that our world is heading in. Uh, He's just written a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, A History of Violence and Humanity, in which he argues that overall, the world is actually becoming less violent Over the past 70 years, the number of battlefield deaths per 100,000 people has actually fallen dramatically. He's quite optimistic about the direction of our world. I guess he he comes in a sort of uh, tradition like Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a book called The End of History, which said that uh, liberal democracy had finally triumphed. We were kind of at the end of all our political systems. Liberal democracy had won. Of course, that was written before September 11. And I've got a lot of respect for Stephen Pinker. I think he's a very intelligent man, very impressive man in lots of ways. But I think he's wrong on this one. And I'm not the only one, actually. So for one thing, you might have noticed that 70 years conveniently starts just after World War II. So it doesn't count World War I or World War II, battlefield deaths there. They're kind of out of the picture. And the fact that a lower percentage of people are killed in wars doesn't actually mean there's a lower total number killed. See, if the global population in 1950 was around 2.5 billion, today it's 7.5 billion. So, if my maths is right, and it might not be, a 50% decrease in the number of battlefield deaths per 100,000 over the last 70 years would actually be a 50% increase in the total number. I'm getting some nods from the engineers up the back, that's reassuring. <laughs> Not to mention, as the journal Foreign Policy points out, that focusing on battlefield deaths is profoundly misleading. See, in World War One, 90% of those who died, died on the battlefield. But in World War II, that was down to 50%. And in the war in the Congo this century, only 10% of the deaths were on the battlefield. You may be getting fewer deaths on the battlefield, but you're getting more deaths in the civilian population. It also excludes tens of millions of civilians killed by Stalin and Mao, not to mention the dozens of small wars where civilians are routinely killed as part of policy. And, of course, it doesn't count anything like abortion or any of that sort of thing. And besides, average battlefield deaths doesn't really do much for you when your life is going down the drain, does it? Last week I heard a Rwandan woman speaking about the genocide that her country experienced. She'd just come home from school on April 6th, 1994, when the Rwandan president's plane was shot down. And within an hour government radio stations were calling on the majority Hutus to murder their Tutsi neighbours. And they did. By the thousand, over a period of three months, 800,000 Rwandans, men, women, children, even babies, were slaughtered, often by their literal next-door neighbours, people they'd been living next door to for years. Everyone in her family except her brother was murdered. She only survived because a moderate Hutu locked her, along with seven other women, in his bathroom and pretended to have lost the key. She was totally without hope. She was convinced every day that she would die. Stephen Pinker hadn't written his book then, but even if he had, I doubt that it would have given her much hope. There's not much comfort there. In fact, there's not much comfort in it for you or me either. In fact, the only people a book like that comforts are people whose lives are already pretty comfortable. Two and a half thousand years ago, the people of Judah, their lives were not comfortable. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ezekiel and it documents uh, what happened around about 597 BC when the Babylonian army invaded and conquered Jerusalem. They slaughtered the army, they captured the king, they plundered the temple, and then they carted off all the leaders, all the the top people of society, tens of thousands of them, into exile in Babylon. And yet even after that, some still hoped, because there was a king still left in Jerusalem. Sure, he was a puppet king under the Babylonians, but he was still Jewish, so there was some hope. But then Zedekiah, the puppet king, had the dumb idea of rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And, of course, the Babylonian army came back. They besieged Jerusalem for two years. And people were dying of starvation within the city until finally their resistance collapsed. The Babylonians captured the city. They massacred the population. They burnt every significant building to the ground. They utterly destroyed the temple and they tore down the city walls. Now, if this happened today, we'd call it genocide. That's exactly what it was. And for the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has been prophesying that this is going to happen. And in chapter 33, verse 21, we learn that it's all come to pass. In the twelfth year of our exile, he says... Oh, no, not quite. I'll hold on to that. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month of the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. And yet even then, even after this final collapse of Jerusalem, there are still some people clinging to hope. Verse 23, then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man... The people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. But we're many, surely the land has been given to us as our possession. They say that drowning men clutch at straws. And that is what the Jews were doing. They were clutching at straws, hoping against hope that they might be saved. But then the Lord speaks and he destroys their hope. It says, therefore, uh, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You do detestable things and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Say this to them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those out in the country I'll give to the wild animals to be devoured. And those in strongholds and caves will die of the plague. The people of Judah are hoping that somehow they'll be okay. But God says, no, you won't. Because my judgment has come upon you. And God points out Three things to them in in these chapters. He points out that Judah has bad leaders, they have bad enemies, and they're bad people. So in chapter 34, the Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy against the leaders of Israel, the shepherds. And he says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them." Bad leaders are bad news. Whether it's Judah 2,500 years ago, or the Rwandan government 25 years ago, or dictators today like Kim Jong Un or Bashar al-Assad, Robert Mugabe, Vladimir Putin. Bad leaders are bad news. We're blessed with a better political system in the West, but I don't know that anyone would really describe Donald Trump or even Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten as really good leaders. I'm not sure. I don't think so. After all, that's why we like democracy, isn't it? Because it's a system where we can get rid of leaders regularly because we know they're pretty rubbish. That's a good thing, to be able to get rid of bad leaders but it's not as good as having good leaders. Even in the church, we've had any number of disastrous leaders covering up sexual abuse, failing to teach sound doctrine, feeding on the flock instead of feeding them, praying on them instead of praying for them. Bad leaders are bad news. And Judah had bad leaders, but they had bad enemies too. And in chapter 35 of Ezekiel, the Lord calls out Edom for attacking Israel and gloating over the destruction of Judah. He said, they have been laid waste and have been given over to us to devour. Edom should have been, uh, whoops, sorry, that's not right. Uh, Edom should have been allies with Israel because after all, they were sort of relatives. Edom were descended from Esau, the brother of Israel. But instead, Israel's closest relatives have become their worst enemy. But we actually have much worse enemies than Edom. I mean, you've got enemies that you might make at uni or at work or wherever, and they can be bad enough. But they actually pale in comparison to our real enemies, to sin and death and the devil. Because they're enemies that leave you without hope. No matter how hard you try, you can't escape them. No matter how hard you try, you will sin. No, many how, no matter how many vitamins you take or how many miles you run, you can only stave off death for so long. And in the end, you will stand before God on the day of judgment and you will be accused by the devil, rightly accused, of all the evil that you've ever thought or said or done. Sin, death and the devil. They are very bad enemies to have. And you know what? You can't do anything about them. We're totally stuffed. It might be okay if we were good people. If we could actually say, look, I haven't done anything wrong. What's the problem? Satan's got nothing to accuse me of. I've got no sin. I don't deserve to die. But we're not good people, are we? Left to ourselves, we're just like Israel. So chapter 36, verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. Now, women, don't get this wrong. Uh, God's not saying there's something wrong or something bad about having your period. He made you like that. He made you good. No, he's using a metaphor to say that Israel shed blood like it was just a natural thing. That their behaviour was like shoving a used sanitary pad in God's face. It's disgusting. Their behaviour is foul. Yes, Israel's leaders were bad. Yes, their enemies were bad, but the people were bad as well. I wonder if you've realised that about yourself, that left to your own devices, you're actually not a good person. We love to blame our leaders and we love to blame uh, our enemies, but the problem is not simply out there. It's actually in here. You don't need to teach children to be selfish. But you've got to put enormous effort into teaching them to share. Even when you put that effort in, basically we've managed to manipulate them and persuade them into socially acceptable forms of selfishness. We don't actually make them less selfish. We just teach them that if they behave like that, bad things are going to happen to them. They won't have friends. People won't like them. But it's all selfish motivation. Perhaps you've caught a glimpse of that evil in your own heart and you've tried to push it down only for it to sort of bob back up again like a rubber ball in water. You've tried to stop watching porn but you can't seem to do it. You've sensed something of your own greed but you can't stop buying stuff. You've glimpsed your envy at other people's success. Your frustration when they get a high distinction and you only get a credit your pride your anger maybe you've had that moment where you've just caught a glimpse of what you're actually like and you've recoiled in disgust and god is kind that he doesn't let us look on that the whole day but he does he sees it all and it's disgusting he disgusts it disgusts him <coughs> For Ezekiel, God shows us that if if it is up to us, we actually have no hope. We're completely stuffed. Israel had every advantage that you could possibly hope for. They're chosen by God, they're set apart by him to be his special people. They're given his word, his laws to keep, and yet again and again they blow it. They stuff it up spectacularly, turning to idols, engaging in all sorts of evil, failing to do justice to each other and in the end their evil overwhelmed them and so if Israel couldn't do it what hope do we have bad leaders, bad news, bad people it's bad news people sometimes think that the books of the bible are kind of manuals on how to be a good person a kind of moral guide, a sort of amped up etiquette guide, but it's not really. It's actually a series of books written over a thousand years showing that we're not good. God declaring that left to ourselves we can't be good. But amidst all the bad news, there is good news. The good news is that though we are helpless and hopeless, God is not. So have a look with me at chapter 36, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God says he will rescue Israel. He will bring them back from their enemies, from back from Assyria back from Babylon, back to all the other nations that they've been scattered through as refugees but more than that he's actually going to cleanse them he's going to change their hearts, cleanse their impurities, wash away their sin and he's going to do it by putting his spirit in them so that they have a new heart one that is no longer this heart of stone that just fails to respond to him but a heart of flesh that is moved by his word, changed by his spirit, so that they actually want to live in a way that pleases him. They can't do it. They're helpless. Who can change their own heart? But God can. In chapter 37, the Lord brings Ezekiel out into the middle of a valley and it's full of bones, dry bones. And he asks him, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a very wise reply. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. He's right, isn't he? Who could make these dry bones live? Only God. Then he said to me, son of man, uh, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. The dry bones are Israel. But they're also a picture of us. That we're dead to God. We're unable to respond to him. Unable to make ourselves alive. But God is the one who creates out of nothing. Who breathes life into the lifeless. And hope into the hopeless. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people... I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. It's a picture of what God did to Israel. That he resurrected the nation. He brought it back to life, out of exile in Babylon. But it's more than that. Because when did he put his spirit in them? When did he transform them and give them a new heart? A heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? Well, it wasn't when they returned from Babylon. They came back the same kind of people as when they'd left. Because the resurrection of the nation of Israel was only a picture of a future resurrection to come. A resurrection that could only happen to God's people when Israel's leader had been raised from the dead. So have a look at um, chapter 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. How can David be king over Israel? By the time you get to Ezekiel, David's been dead for 400 years. He is well and truly rotted in the grave. And with the death of Zedekiah, the whole royal family has been cut off. There is no royal line anymore. It's gone. How can David possibly rule? Humanly speaking, it seems impossible. But not with God. Metaphorically, the Lord does raise... David, and his line from the dead, by sending his own son, Jesus, the descendant of David, to be the ruler of God's people. He's the good shepherd that Israel lacked, the one who lays down his life for his sheep, who dies to free them from the power of their enemies, taking the penalty of sin on himself and stripping the devil of his only weapon, the ability to rightly accuse us before God. And in doing that, he sets us free from the fear of death and judgment. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God raised up Jesus to be the leader of his people. And he raised him from the dead as well. Resurrecting our David to rule over his people forever. And pouring out his spirit to wash us clean. Giving us a new heart, a heart of flesh. Transforming us so we actually want to live for God. Giving us a leader who has defeated all our enemies and will return to destroy them once and for all. New people, a new leader, and lastly, a new world. In chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel prophesies about a mysterious character called Gog. uh, Gog, the king of Magog. And no one has any idea who they are. They don't seem to fit with any historical figure or any historical nation. But in Revelation chapter 20, they symbolise Satan and all the enemies of God's people. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the enemies of God's people have already been defeated. And because they've already been defeated, because Jesus is our new leader, because God has put his spirit in us to change his people to be a new people, we can be confident, we can have a sure and certain hope that there is a new world coming. Where all our enemies are defeated once and for all. Sin, death, the devil, and all who serve them. The picture that Ezekiel is painting for us in chapters 33 to 39 is not just a picture of Israel returning from exile in Babylon. It's a picture of not a return to the old Jerusalem but a whole new Jerusalem, a new world where God's leader, Jesus, rules over God's new people who are transformed by his spirit. Your life might be pretty sucky at the moment. But this is real hope. If your hope is simply that you'll pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that somehow you'll get it together, that somehow we as a society will get it all together, I think you're going to be very badly disappointed. There are lots of good things that happen in this life, but if your ultimate hope is here... (coughs) you'll be very disappointed indeed. But there is a better hope. The Rwandan woman I mentioned before said that uh, when they first heard on the BBC radio program that Tutsis were being killed, her whole village came to her father because everyone respected him. He was a Christian man and as the village gathered, he told them, if this is only a small group, we will fight them off. But if it is the government doing these things, I cannot lie to you. They will kill us. So let us take this opportunity to confess our sins to God, that we might be ready to meet him. Now there's a man who knew where real hope lay. Not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. Not in guns or governments or better education or any human effort, but in the Lord because the Lord is the God who gives hope to the hopeless. We pray with me? Heavenly Father, we mourn for the state of our world, for the state of our leaders, and for the state of our own hearts. Father, forgive us for our sin, we pray, and we thank you that you have sent Jesus, your son, to pay for our sin, to raise us to new life, to pour out his spirit and to rule over us for eternity. Lord, we pray that he would return again soon to bring a new world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Father, help us to look forward to that. Help us to live in the light of that and to share the message of hope
0: with the hopeless of our world. In Jesus' name, Amen.